Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire, episode 119, total episode 169, nice, Catalan 2 in a Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And wow, I, I didn't know actually how many total episodes we had, so that's pretty exciting. I've been waiting for that moment, <laughs> A. B, a friend of ours on Twitter last week said that we needed to include uh, some sort of spicy Dornish pepper system for, for lewd content. Mm. And I just wanted to reiterate that we are lewd. That yeah. was your warning. I mean, I think that, that the comment was more like, is it an episode of Girls Gone Canon if it's not a little lewd? And you know what? There's no way that this episode's not going to be because mom and dad. Mom and dad fuck. Yeah. They make sweet fuck. That's how they made so many children. There's a great point, maybe a really sad, depressing point that was made on the Discord earlier this week that I'm like two years younger than Catelyn now at this point. Oh, yeah, let's not. I'm not. I mean, I'm not decrepit and ancient like you, but I mean, yeah. I'm like, I'm about to fall you know, apart. I'm, t- I'm two. I'm also you're, about to fall apart, but you're you're two years old, yeah. You are the opposite, yeah. you know. I'm two years younger than Catelyn. You're two years old, <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, I'm the Rickon of this shit, and I love it. I love not Rick knowing on, shit. Rickon roll, dumb bitch. Rick and roll. Oh my god, do a Rick and roll. <sighs> well, that's our fun email tweeted note this week. We didn't get much because I think it's just so fish out of water. New yeah. POV. We'll definitely have to bring back and showcase some of the stuff we have on Discord from some of our friends who are saying some wonderful things, some really great conversation happening. It's been very thoughtful, very provoking. I think a lot of uh, discussion. There's some non-believers, some Catalan non-believers, but you know what? We've got a long POV ahead of us. Buckle up. We do. Actually, we we do have, this is our, this is one of the longest, longer POVs that we've done. Not the longest, of course, that's John. Yeah. But. Oh my god, it was so long. It's crazy to think that it was also now kind of so long ago, right? Like, I think it was yeah. over a year ago now that we did John. Sometimes it feels like it was really recently, but we've gone through so many characters since then. And here we are at Catelyn. Yeah, but you know what? John, but not forgotten. We're going to do a lot of talking oh, about yeah. John today in this Catelyn episode. Nothing? There's nothing that didn't provoke anything from you, John, but not forgotten. Okay. Uh, and instead of gone, but not forgotten. Yeah, I got it. I, it took me a second. And then I was like, I got it. I got it. I'm proud of you. Hired. Hired. <laughs> my whole thing is that I have to have uh, uh, attention for my behavior. I seek attention, Eliana. If you don't gratify me, what's going to become of me? I pointed Shit. this out when some of our friends over on the History of the MCU podcast, which if any of you haven't checked it out yet, go check it out. Chloe has been on quite a few episodes, but this is prior to, I think, the recording of maybe their first minisode that I think Chloe makes secretly more puns than I do. And I think you th- you think that too. And yet, and yet, I am vilified for it wrongfully, as some other characters are wrongfully vilified throughout mm. Throughout, uh, you know, life. Well, speaking of that, let's jump into our lightning round before Catalan 2 today, which our lightning round today opens up with Daenerys 1. 
The exiled princess Daenerys Targaryen prepares to be presented to the Dothraki Khal Drogo, and her brother, King Viserys, prays for a marriage to be made. Eddard One, King Robert Baratheon, arrives at Winterfell and comes to ask Ned to do his duty to the crown that he helped win. John One, the majesty of a visit from the king and his court is not so magical for Jon Snow, who watches from the bastard's place. He makes an unlikely friend amidst everything. Absolutely, and that brings us to Catelyn to A Game of Thrones. Catelyn receives a secret letter from her sister, which ignites a spark and brings Ned face to face with some cold, hard facts. Yes, cold, hard facts indeed. But we actually start off Catelyn to pretty warm. In a couple of ways, Winterfell is situated over natural hot springs which warm the stone walls and keep the earth and the glass gardens from freezing. It could be the difference between life and death in the winter. Catelyn's bedchamber is the hottest room in Winterfell. Yeah, it is. Her walls always warm to the touch, baths always steaming. It reminded her of home and river run with her siblings, and oh, it sounds nice to me. That does sound nice, river run as a child. And during, I guess, that time, we do find Catelyn musing on her fond memories with her siblings, right? They, as this sort of time of innocence. And, you know, compared and contrasted with the Starks as the series goes on, I think it's really interesting to see that. I think Ned almost never thinks about the memories of his brothers and sisters as children and, and spending time together. It's always really tinged with sadness. And then he's like, nope, nope, shove that memory down. Let's not think about that. He doesn't even really even think about Brandon, even though that's a wedge between him and Catelyn. He thinks a little bit about Robert, right? Who is very much like family to him, as all of the beginning of A Game of Thrones stresses to us. And I think that, you know, we already did Ned long ago and have, have talked about him a lot. It's clear that Ned doesn't think about his siblings because of the wounds after all of these years. It's really painful. The memories, like, he can't even touch them. Whereas Catelyn's siblings that she knew growing up, right? I mean, her two older brothers were, I think, too young, or maybe died before she did. Mm -hmm. Her youngest brother died so, so quickly, and during that childbirth, she grew up with Liza and Edmure, and she does think about them. She doesn't really know that either of them have changed yet. It reminds me a little of how we see Sansa, Arya, and even Jon, maybe Bran, right? They think a lot about mm -hmm. their memories of their own siblings, even though they themselves, like Ned know that their siblings or think that their siblings are perhaps dead, but they're willing to touch those memories and and especially those of their eldest brother Rob, whom who is dead. Like we all, it was it was really heartbreaking. It's going to happen in one of Catelyn's chapters, right? And everything was meant for Rob and the way it was for Brandon, and and they're mm -hmm. both dead. But maybe because it's more recent that death, like that the Stark children are willing to revisit those memories, and rather than it being so painful and them ruminating on it alone that for years and years, they're still able to draw strength from the memories of their family. That's a great point. Catelyn's connections with her family, it's interesting because we don't get to see those connections, right? We have to rely a lot on these memories. George is doing a great job of world building with those memories and giving us different things from her childhood as well as kind of telling you, hey, other parts of the world exist and these are part of them. 
I I do think about Bran chapters and I'm so excited to read them with you eventually because he just has the sweetest memories about his family. Always about how like, well, Sansa likes kissing stories and Arya's always showing off and about Rob. He he has this this dream about flying and how he's like, man, Rob wouldn't believe me if I told him about this and I could teach him, you know, I could teach him to fly. I could teach Arya to fly, Sansa to fly. Even John, even baby Rickon, I could teach them all to fly and we could just be crows. We could be ravens in Maester Lewin's rookery, he thinks. And it's just such a sweet, sad sentiment from a boy who's coming into these magical powers. Mm-hmm. That bond that they share and seeing that kinship is so nice because you imagine that Ned had that kind of bond. And this this chapter in general is so hard knowing what happens mm-hmm. in the future. You're filled with that sense of doom. And we're coaxing Ned out of his trauma shell the entire chapter. Robert just visited, right? Ned is coming off a whole ass trip where he had to subdue all of these parts of him that wanted to blurt out the truth to his best friend, quote unquote, about Liana with the Baratheon court and then some in attendance he knew he could not. Game of Thrones, more like Game of Cabinets because this guy is compartmentalizing, you know? We're going to talk about that a lot in this chapter. And it tells us, a lot about Catelyn's psyche, but also about how Ned's psyche informs it. On your first read, you just realize it's a marriage with issues. You know, you're like, oh, that's too bad. Mom and dad still have sex, but man, there are some issues between them. And then on your several reread, you realize, oh, it's just all coded in trauma. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard. He's reminded of Robert, right, this whole trip and this whole conversation with Catelyn. Uh, He's reminded of the murder of the Targaryen children, the loss of his family. His fourth chapter does a lot to kind of, again, inform this chapter as well. In contrast with Catelyn 1, he's told kind of the truth of Cersei's behavior from Robert's mouth, but shrugs it off in ways, right, as, oh, locker room talk, just some humor. And Catelyn in Catelyn 1 tells him, I hear the Lannister woman gets more and more prideful. By the end of this chapter, he's admitted, holy shit, the Lannisters are monsters, cat. Yes, what don't you get about it? I already know. I just didn't want to say it. It's uncouth. You know, like, I can't say it. I'm not allowed to say that. Uh, there's just so much beneath the surface that Catalan's like, peeling the trauma bandages off of, and we get so close that it makes sense George parts them as the happy couple, because had you left them together, their communication would only prosper and they would eventually figure it out together. You yeah, know, like they're that absolutely. kind of couple that they would end up communicating in this chapter alone. As we go through it, we're going to see all these moments Ned almost breaks. Uh, they would be unstoppable, but this is a sad story and not a triumphant story yet. So they don't make it out, as we know, fully. I mean, kind of. No. It's complicated. No, they don't. And I think that, uh, something that you said earlier really struck me about how... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a chapter where Robert's here, and we're seeing here at the beginning that it's all about the connections that Ned and Catelyn both have with their families, right? In this chapter, we're going to mm-hmm. discuss, as you said, the moments the moment that will lead to their family splitting apart physically, but not necessarily emotionally. But it's also because they're torn and being pulled, right? Their heartstrings are being pulled by other members of their other families, right? Mm-hmm. Here we see that... Cat is pliable to Liza as her family, and of course Ned, his other family that he chose out of love. So, (laughs) a lot going on here. And before we get there, though, you know, before we get there, let's roll it back, right? Let's talk about some of that Dornish pepper 
good stuff that was brought up in the tweet because Ned could never abide the heat and things are hot right now in Catelyn's room. Real hot. Ned, of course, says that you... (laughs) Oh, for sure. He says that the Starks were made for the cold and Catelyn would always laugh and say that they built their castle in the wrong place. As you said, Chloe, you know, they would have worked it out eventually. Eventually. It's it's (laughs) taken 14 years, but... Another steamy thing that is happening right now, though, again, Ned and Cat, and I mean, it's not starting, it is ending, right? Ned is rolling off, he's like, mm, hell yeah, he just nutted, and he's climbing from her bed, <laughs> and he goes to pull back the tapestries and let in the cool air, and I want to remind everyone, and the book reminds us of this, right? Granted, of course, the windows are kind of thin, so maybe no one can see, but maybe they can, because Ned goes to the window, throws back the curtains, and he's naked, all right? Ned's just, like, letting it all hang out there, and he's like, Winterfell, here I am! Y'all thought he was shy, he is not. You know how, like, two chapters ago he was like, Winterfell is yours, your grace, and now he's all like, Winterfell's mine, my <laughs> grace. <laughs> uh, Take a look at this, Robert! Uh, uh, my face isn't the only thing that's long. No, but, you I'm know, sorry. not in this moment, because uh, here, Catelyn <laughs> thinks that Ned looks smaller and more vulnerable now, and maybe she means his, his demeanor, mm-hmm. but maybe she means that mm-hmm. Ned's a grower and not a shower. Not the time, Eliana. Now is not the time. Well, how is now not the time? This is what we're finding out. <sighs> well, it was a good. It was a good sesh. It is the the whole gist here, right? She thinks that Ned looks younger, like the man she married back at River Run. Her loins ached from the urgency of his lovemaking, but a good ache. They had a good. She time. prayed maybe she could give him another son. It had only been three years since she gave him Rickon. Again, not that old, just older than Eliana, which is pretty... I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, She's 32. Eliana. She could uh, have another child. She could. She could have another child. And it's really sad because... It's like, I'm like, how do I word this better? This heartache is so sad. Uh, Catelyn is like, what can I give this man? How can I keep our flame lit continually? How can I be of value to him? Mm-hmm. I could still give him one more child. Because that's westerosi love language right to give heirs that's what she's expected to do that's what she was bred to do and knowing what happens to obviously rob and hell brands fall although the rest look like there's hope right like we look like good things were on the horizon someday for the start kids eventually it's just sad that she dies there it's sad that she thinks maybe she can do good here and be of value and dies thinking all her kids are dead but it's also sad because like what happens after that? You can't just keep having kids, Catalan. Yeah. And I mean, it's a risk for her each time, right? That is how her mother yep. died. Constantly yep. trying to bear heirs. And it's Liza something... almost died trying to bear Absolutely. heirs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as you said, her kids all die before her. And part of it is maybe she also ha- takes great joy in being a mother. And it's something that I wonder if we'll talk about one day. If we ever decide to talk about Alysanne and Jaehaerys, right? Because Alysanne's another mm-hmm. figure for whom so many of her children died before she did. Uh, Catelyn, you know, at least zombie cat, maybe she'll find out like, wow, amazing, my kids are alive. That's, that's a real treat, except for the part where you're dead and everything's terrible and you thought that they were <laughs> dead. Like, a lot, of, a lot of things happened before then, but absolutely. I hope she gets some peace, but... Yeah, maybe some mercy. 
Mercy, mercy, mercy. Technically, Chloe already published this. I know that we kind of hinted at it last time, but I'm going to keep avoiding actually telling people what what it is until she wants to. (laughs) For now, uh, Ned declares that he's going to refuse Robert. He will refuse him, turning his back on her. His eyes are haunted and his voice is thick with doubt. And Catelyn says that he can't. He must not. He argues that his duties are in the North and he has no wish to take a hand job. Uh, Again, he's he's already finished. He's not not thinking like that's what he wants right now. Um, But Catelyn says Robert's not going to understand that and Ned's like, that's why I'm standing at this window. And then Catelyn explains, kings are not like other men. She explains that if he doesn't accept sooner or later, Robert will suspect that he's against the crown. Yeah, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Robert, yeah, Robert's quite changed and she's not wrong. Uh, Ned's insistent, though. He's like, Robert would never harm me or any of mine. We were closer than brothers. He loves me. If I refuse him, he will roar and curse and bluster, and in a week we will laugh about it together. I know the man. You knew the man, she said. The king is a stranger to you. Catelyn remembered the dire wolf dead in the snow. The broken antler lodged deep in her throat. She had to make him see. <sighs> Once more we get the omen of the broken antler, and I kind of love the ambiguity of it in this sentence. It says... Catelyn remembered the dire wolf dead in the snow. The broken antler lodged deep in her throat. She had to make him see. So the way the sentence flows, it's obviously that the antler is in the dire wolf. However, it flows straight into she had to make him see, connecting her to the dire wolf, right? And it's representative Uh of Catelyn a lot in this chapter. She must carefully select her words, hold the ones that she craves to send forward like arrows back, uh, she, she has to hold still and just wait as Ned puzzles certain things out and push at the right time when Maester Lewin pulls. And obviously the antler in the dire wolf mom is an obvious metaphor for the Baratheon Lannister interference that kind of comes and brings the pain to House Stark. But it's actually pretty literal. Uh, it, it's a literal representation for Catelyn here, right? Because she's unable to voice her true thoughts and voice her own thrut. Her own throat is being cut into, rendering her unable to speak right now because of Robert's love for Ned and Lyanna clouding Ned's vision for his family in the long run. And of course, all all of this revolving around John and kind of that uh, lack of communication going on there just a bit. <clears throat> and of course, later, this same antler is kind of connected in that she becomes the dire wolf mom once more with the antler in her throat unable to speak leading kingsmen right baratheon antlered kingsmen or ex-kingsmen as mother merciless unable to speak mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's rough because ned here is finally being called out on robert right on his loyalty to this guy who really isn't that great of a dude and that's kind of his whole thing for a game of thrones robert would never hurt me or my kin slash john would he now he spends the rest of the book trying to understand the truth of if his friend's in danger or if his friend is a piece of crap and then he falls but of course ned kind of knows the truth again there's a lot that happened in ned's first chapter right he hates Uh tywin and he thinks no he knows tywin's a child murderer and that children are unsafe with tywin he thinks that in his very first chapter he then hears from robert that Sweet Robin will never be the man John Aaron was and does not hope to help secure Sweet Robin's future as Warden of the East. 
Robert doesn't see the child as politically fulfilling, hands off the title likely to Jamie, and Ned notices Robert is using children like coin. The familial alliance between John, Robert, and Ned is supposed to be ironclad, right? John went out for them. John was like, those are my sons. I'm not letting them get their asses taken by the king. This conversation here proves that Robert's not honoring that alliance anymore. Robert is not looking out for Sweet Robin to that extent. He claims he can't because of the Lannisters and because Liza's taken him away from them. However, Robert is still not looking out for him to that extent. He even says, his son will succeed to the Eyrie and all its incomes, no more. That took Ned by surprise. He stopped, startled, and turned to look at his king. The words came unbidden. That's pretty big, right? Like, that's a pretty big moment that Ned's like, wait, what the fuck do you mean you're not taking care of John Aaron's kid? That's like your one job, dude. That's like what this was about. But what happens if Ned dies then? That was John Aaron's only true-born son. What happens to Ned's true-born kin? Well, we see some of it, right, in the Baratheon reign, but- This is also all before Robert says, Sansa should marry Joffrey, which Ned then sees. This is coin for loyalty. Sansa Mm -hmm. is blood for coin, right? Just as we discussed the idea uh, uh, with Quentin and Doran and Malario, for example, of how angry she was of her child being sold off. Um, This is bigger shit than just what's been hanging out at Winterfell in those beautiful walls in the snow, having a good time in the glass gardens. This is a lot bigger. His chapter actually ends like Catelyn's first chapter, right? All of the eyes on him of the Starks this time. Catelyn has all the eyes of the Weirwood on her. But Ned actually ends with the eyes of the Starks in the crypts in his chapter, staring at him. And he can feel them and feel them listening. And that winter is coming. Ned has pretty strong thoughts about Robert Baratheon in his very first chapter for a guy that is sitting here going, Robert's a good guy, he's my friend. I'm just saying, pretty strong thoughts about everything about him. Yeah, he has gut feeling, but he's not willing to listen to it because, as you said, he grew up with Robert as his his brother. And again, as you said, Robert's not taking care of Robert Aaron. And Mm -hmm. in one way, like Robert Aaron's like his nephew, right? But also Robert Aaron is also very much like his brother if John Aaron is his adopted father, right? Mm -hmm. How can he not take care of his namesake? And... Maybe that's just the track record of Robert, right? Like, as we find out this chapter, Robert has many bastards, did not necessarily take good care of them. And this is just how Robert treats his family. We see he kind of treats Ned like shit quite a bit later on. But that's what he did to Renly. That's why he did what he did to Stannis. That's why Stannis has so much, like, trauma from his own, like, stuff with Robert. And Robert just lets his family down, all of them, including the ones that are supposed to be his true-born children. Yeah, the ones that really need it. (laughs) The ones that are supposed to, you know, inherit the whole kingdom. He can't do that. Besides the ones that got, like, straight up fuck them kids murdered by Cersei, you know? Besides those ones, by the Joff-Cersei coalition there. He didn't do anything to secure them. The ones that are alive. Yeah. Yeah, the ones that are alive, those ones are, well, Gendry's a little rough around the edges, but the rest of them are alright. Maya good. Maya's, Maya's great. Yeah, I believe in Maya. I have to. And Bella seems to be happy with her life. Isn't that all that matters in the end? I think it is. I think, you know, Bella's pleased. Maya is for the most part pleased. Gendry has a lot of, I think, angst. 
but you know he's also in the middle of having witnessed a lot of killing and war and stuff but whatever Catelyn recognizes all this and says to Ned that pride is everything to a king and Robert has come all this way to bring Ned honors he can't just throw them in his face and Ned bitterly laughs out honors honors Catelyn repeats and he's like in your eyes or and then Catelyn says that it's an honor in Robert's eyes and Ned's like is it an honor in your eyes as well and she's like well yeah and she thinks it why couldn't he see but of course I am reminded of one of our friends Salador Stan Mm -hmm. our Salador Stan account here at Girls Gone Canon yep we are and I have to say he will kill you with these honors my friend Absolutely. And I mean, Robert and Edward kind of talk about it anyway, because Robert's like, yeah, I'm bringing you so you can clean up my shit. Duh. <laughs> and that's like, oh, awesome. I think I already did that when, you know, we were teenagers, but whatever. Holding Robert's we here back. <laughs> yeah. And Catelyn explains that he, Robert needs to marry the future king to their daughter, and which means, duh, Ned, that Sansa might someday be queen. And that's like, but Sansa's only 11, and Joffrey is, and she finishes the sentence, crown prince and heir to the throne, don't go talking treason in our bedroom, and Ed. And then she reminds him that she was only 12 when she had been promised to Brandon. She's like, Maester Lewin's cool, but he's still a fucking cop, okay? He's still a narc. All right, you hear him? Narc. Big narc. Maester Lewin. Uh, <laughs> but, but that does Maester Lewin so much wrong. Maester Lewin's... I love Maester Lewin. I do too. I do too. As we go forward, there are some really good Maester Lewin moments in this. He died. You know, Ned's push to keep the kids. Oh my god. Sorry. We're not even that sad. We can't I'm be sad st- yet. I'm already sad about Maester Lewin. I'm already so sad about that and this about whole entire everything. chapter. Everything's so sad. Ned's push to keep the kids from growing up too fast is showcased once again. We do see it afforded a little differently for John, and we'll discuss that later. But this this makes me saddest, right? Because, of course, the last northern girl who ran off with a crown prince that Ned knew, dot, dot, dot. Absolutely. Died. Bitch died. It was Absolutely. his sister, and she dead. Your sister! So, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a... It's That's a relevant now in these chapters. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. We get a passage between Ned and Catelyn. That brought a bitter twist to Ned's mouth. (laughs) Brandon. Yes, Brandon would know what to do. He always did. It was all meant for Brandon. You, Winterfell, everything. He was born to be a king's hand and a father to queens. I never asked for this cup to pass to me. Perhaps not, Catelyn said. But Brandon is dead. And the cup has passed, and you must drink from it, like it or not. Ned turned away from her, back to the night. There's a lot of Ned turning away, and I think he's just going back to the window each time. I've never been told that he put clothes back on. Um, He does it, like, five times this chapter. I have a take on it later, I promise. Is it that Ned's an exhibitionist? Because I think that's the only take that I have. I have two takes that are not that. I have two takes that are are not that. I think. I think that's the Two only Two types t- of people. Two types of people in this world. Maybe three. Maybe three. Well, other kinds of people are uh, people who fit biblical analogies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, long, long ago, we talked about how Ned Stark died. 
died for our sins, and the parallels between Ned's visit to the Godswood and Jesus' own visit to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? with Ned's daughters falling asleep and all of Jesus' disciples falling asleep. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting here that both Ned and Kat are using the language uh, regarding this responsibility of, I never asked this cup to pass to me, and Kat saying back the cup has passed, because the language in Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane slash the Mount of Olives prior to his crucifixion was, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So, of course, I think it's pretty straightforward. The cup is symbolizing the suffering and the burden of this responsibility. But it also, you know, starts showing us, like, yo, Ned's gonna die for our sins through that parallel. But also going off of what you were saying, Chloe, about Catelyn's insistence, I do think that part of it has as much to do with how Catelyn was raised and her maiden house words, family, duty, honor, as everyone knows. Catelyn demonstrates the case for accepting the hand position as Ned's responsibility to his family in terms of the position that this is a duty to fulfill to one's kingdom and again back to his family right in their station, but also perceives that Robert will think of this as a great honor and that the position in general for most people is considered a pretty big honor. That's why a lot of people like want it. That's why like Axel Thorne's such a huge dick about wanting it. In the next chapter, we'll see that Cat reverses her position regarding whether or not Ned should take this job uh, after Bran's injury, and she begs Ned not to go. And when she does so, she's leaning very much into the first of those words, family, that everything is different now and Ned must stay, showing the importance of family to her. And it sets the stage for Kat's later actions, right? Especially when it comes to freeing Jamie, where family, the safety of her daughters, is the main motivation. And it's something that she actually shares with Ned, Uh, which could be why they were able to see eye to eye in many things, but also part of why their ways of uh, protecting their family differ. The how of how they do it differs, but it matters so much to them that that love of family drives them to so many different things. Yeah, that's a great way to put it all together, because no matter what, they love their family and they want to protect it, even if they don't see that same exact way. And again, had they just gotten to stay together... But duty calls, duty calls, and Ned is back to staring out into the darkness, and Catelyn softens because she can see his pain. He had married her in his brother's place, and as the custom decreed, but the shadow of Brandon lay between them, and the shadow of the woman who Ned wouldn't name, who had borne his bastard son to him. She's about to go to his side, but a knock comes to the door. Ned asks what it is, and Desmond says, Maester Lewin is without, and begs their audience. Ned slips on a robe, and Catelyn, realizing how cold it is, pulls the fur blankets up to her chin. She mentions they should close the windows, and he does, as Lewin is showed in. So there you go. Are you happy, Eliana? You get to hear that the windows are closed. I don't I don't mind. I think Ned's unhappy. That's <laughs> <laughs> Ned's kink. Besides oh the hair God. pulling. Um, that's also Catelyn's <laughs> That's also Catelyn's <laughs> It was only funny last time. You can't do is it, it again is for it? at least, like, Mm-mm. three books. You can't do it for well, two Well, I books. have to do it until she dies, you know, because it all leads up to that moment. That's, oh. the, that's the line. Uh, you know, we're going to just take all the emotional impact out of this really beautiful, poignant line. I'm going to ruin everything. Things that are not ruined. George's use of imagery. 
he does this really wonderful thing here in this chapter where he's using temperature to indicate the shift in mood, right? The the chapter opens with the warmth of Winterfell and setting, kind of doing some world building around that. But it is strange here, right, for Lewin to insist on an audience with such urgency. And Kat, as we have seen throughout these past two chapters already, is very intuitive. That it suddenly becomes so cold without much really changing in the room is both due to the strained nature of her and Ned's conversation just now, but also that we can sense that this moment feels wrong, and that shift in temperature tells the audience something is a little wrong through Catelyn's interiority. Besides that, she pulls the furs to her chin, which is her way of remembering decorum and almost covering herself in line with social norms, which, I mean, most people don't go around being naked around most other people, even in our own world. And that makes her actions later on in this chapter much more heightened in contrast. And Maester Lewin is adorable, though. He's the best part of this scene, right? It's interesting how you describe that, because it's like, the Starks are like uh, every family in Game of Thrones that you should expect to be, you know, a a hardcore political, I'm a big political player, I'm a Lannister, I'm a High Gardener, I'm a Tyrell, whatever they are called, you know, I don't care about them. But the uh, the, the Tyrells, um, the Starks are like, they're like the good one that you're supposed to root for, you know, they're, they're the good guys. And everyone in the Starks camp is different, right? Like, mm-hmm. Maester Lewin is a, a good maester. He's not like the bad maesters that we hear about later from Barbary Dustin, right? He's yep. like, ah, Maester Lewin's different. Although we do learn some of his appeals are a bit different as far as like uh, what he teaches Bran and he doesn't believe in as much magic, right? He's all like, no science in books, not magic. Bran, that's not the way. I just find it so interesting that everyone in the Stark camp is like, they're not like everyone else. Sometimes it can be a little like Mary Sue in some manners that like, oh, they're the best person in the world, but sometimes it's fine. Kind of cute. But Maester Lewin is adorable, right? So it's like, it's totally worthwhile. He's kind of the ornery, no magic, cute old man. He's small. He's gray eyed and gray haired. So Barbary dusts it off and, you know, says she said the Maesters are like rats. And here he looks like one, but a very cute rat. Very cute. He's in stark gray and white robes with floppy sleeves full of hidden pockets, always stuffing with books, messages, and toys for the children. <sighs> yes. Catalan's surprised he can lift his arms at all with those sleeves. Dude, is Maester Lewin, like, secretly swole from just carrying toys around all the time? <laughs> <laughs> He's, like, super strong Santa. But, yes, as you said, I mean, he is very lovable, and I think that's part of the point, right? Because we're all like, what? Maester Lewin is so good. How can you say that, Barbary Dustin? And that's part of the turning um, and and subverting of our expectations. And, <laughs> you know, Starks as it are goes. so special, Barbary says. Pretty much. And, I mean... And I think Lewin plays a, an important role, not just in Kat's chapters, but of course in Bran's. And for me, I mm-hmm. think one of my favorites is, of course, the role that he plays for Bran and them. And so you see him when they're part of Winterfell. But the role that he plays in Theon's chapters, and we discussed that during Theon's chapters, that he does yes. genuinely give Theon good advice. He's like, I don't know why the fuck you're doing this, and I do still love you, but you need to chill. Well, and it's interesting you say that because he kind of plays this role, a moral compass role in this Mm -hmm. scene too. He and Kat, it almost reminds me of Davos and Mel being the angel and devil Hmm. on Stannis' shoulders, but here Catelyn and Lewin flank Ned, but they actually come at him from both sides, right? They both have kind of the same 
thought process of what they should do and what the right thing to do is, but they believe it for different reasons. Maester Lewin's like, well, this is the traditional thing of what you should do. And Catalan's like, well, I'm thinking shrewdly here that we have to do this, otherwise our family's fucked. And they kind of come at it from different angles, but it does seem without Lewin there, Catalan will be pushing a boulder, practically. You know, like she wouldn't probably be getting quite as far, or it might be the opposite. She might exactly get much farther. But I don't know. I, I I think there's something interesting here with how Lewin's being framed with those sleeves as well, because later on in A Dance with Dragons, we learn Melisandre's robe is also used yeah. to hold things. Yep. And that feels really prominent here, right? Like he doesn't have potions or magic up his sleeves because that's not the kind of guy he is, but he has his own brand of magic. Yes. And he's someone who has been sort of adopted into the family. We'll see that later this chapter. Maester Lewin waits until the doors close to spill the news before telling Catelyn and Ned that he's received a new mirrorish lens in his observatory, which actually it was very mysterious because there was no rider. Uh, it was left in a carved wooden box and likely brought by someone in the king's party. And we have this line of under the heavy weight of her furs, Catelyn shivered. A lens is an instrument to help us see. Indeed it is. Oh... <laughs> I don't know if that was my Lewin, but I don't I know. I think it now. was, but I was. I loved it. Thank you. We're gonna have to refine it, but you know, once we get to brand someday, no sweat. I love how meta that was, right? Like a lens mm-hmm. is an instrument to help us see specifically this. Absolutely. It turns out Lewin found a false bottom in the wooden box, but the message was not for his eyes. Ned's like, "All right, well, hand it over, Maester Lewin," and he's like, "It's not for your eyes either." It's for the Lady Catelyn. What a twist! Oh, first of all, got him. Got him, Ned. It's <laughs> Actually, not for though. you. It's not for your bitch it's ass, It's not Ned. for you. Uh, it's not for you. It's not second for you. Second of all, though. Second of all. I really like the way... This is a weird distinction. And so, hear me out. I like the way that he says it's for the Lady Catelyn, because it actually... And there's a lot of things in this chapter specifically that give this vibe off, and I'm sure other people have called this out before. But Catelyn gives off very Lady Jessica vibes from Dune, especially in comparison to the 1993 outline pitch letter. It is obvious that George had a little bit of inspiration in his times of uh, Mr. Herbert. And especially... Whomst? Whomst? The sandworm who literally wrote Dune. But in the outline, she goes north with Bran to try to protect her weird third eye child, right? Until she dies. And... It's very Dune-esque. I'm not going to spoil the plot too deeply, but even in traditional science fiction and fantasy and different high fantasy stories, you get kind of the the one-dimensional female mother character, right? We see a lot of this throughout the story in other ways. Catelyn and Jessica's characters have that bad omen Cassandra motif happening early on, and they end up constantly being proven right in the face of the kind, but also kind of stupid idiot father who dies. You know, like, the guy who's like, you tried your best, but you were doomed from the start, my friend. They both have their own intelligence networks, right? Jessica's is a little more mystical, but they both have different intelligence networks, which is kind of what this represents. Lewin shows up and says, oh, this is from Catalan's intelligence. This is not for you, Mm -hmm. Ned. This is her own thing. It shows that she does have leadership and she has kind of her own people rooting for her in some ways, right? She's not completely cut off from society without Ned, as we see. 
Both of these women were groomed and trained to be perceptive to this and practice these ambitions, though again, Jessica is more divine than Catalan is in that aspect. And Leto and Ned are both really representative of those great guys. They have great leadership skills. All their men really respect them. Lots of past trauma. They're afraid to trust. And they fuck up one or two major things that were pretty unavoidable, to be fair. And they die. In some aspects, the 93 letter and the idea of Catalan's cool, shrewd, calculating logic facing magic beyond the wall is really appealing, but in that same manner with what Lady Jessica plays in Dune and her power, Catalan accompanying Bran is fun, but I think the way that George works with that concept of what would King Arthur's mother actually do is way better, showing the political magic. I mean, I think it shows it's a dose of realism in the world of dragons. You know what I mean? That Catalan can puzzle things out and figure things out and be very politically apt and, of course, still die at the end. <laughs> but Absolutely. And I love that you pointed out that this is something that George intentionally wanted to explore. Of what would King Arthur's mother be thinking? Or what would what would the Chosen One's mother be thinking? But turns out, I guess, Rob's not the Chosen One. She has like 20,000 other Chosen One children, though, apparently, um, in different <laughs> ways. <laughs> but yeah, and as you said... She- it's about her being able to puzzle things out. Ned isn't fond of doing that. Catelyn notes he that he doesn't like puzzles or hidden messages, but Catelyn immediately understands. And as we saw, points out that the lens itself is a message, it's a symbol, and she reads what it means. Same as she reads the other earlier omens about the antler and the direwolf that you were discussing. And she understands it quickly. Again, shivering that use of temperature to indicate the mood. Once more, and that's confirmed that there's something ominous going here by Lumen's reveal. Catelyn's understanding of the symbols and reading the world around her is something that I think is passed on to her children, right? It's something that we see passed on to Sansa and Arya. It's something that's going to have to happen in Bran's own storyline because he's steeped in this idea of, of seeing things through the language of symbols. That's how visions work. And another example, of course, is Sansa reading sigils to know everything that lies behind that what it means for the people and the politics. And another is Arya learning to listen and glean more from people's secrets and gossip. And her children, most of them, deepen these sorts of skills as the series goes on. I wanted to come back to that mirish lens that we see, right, or hear of. Uh, the mirish lens that Maester Lewin has. This is actually the only mirish lens we get until A Dance with Dragons. The only only mirish lens throughout the story till a dance with dragons and in a dance with dragons we actually get mention of uncle roderick nuncle roderick telling asha he's sending for one if you remember and then victorian also has one that gets brought up in his chapters but the only one that gets talked about till then interesting it shows a lot of significance there and roderick of course kind of wants a mirish lens right to be able to read better and that's something Mm -hmm. that we see here on a meta level with the story right catelyn being one of our first lenses into reading the world building of westeros catelyn knowing that the mirish lens is a symbol is telling the reader the importance of these kinds of symbols and omens and to read closely especially with the way that as our friend alex pointed out in their letter last episode that catelyn's story is very much meta and integral to the part to the structure of the books and how it's playing with genre expectations and the many different ways that cat's story itself is also playing with many different kinds of genres something else that i find interesting is 
I also feel this is one of the best slash first views that we get of Maester Lewin, as you were discussing, and as Kat and he agree that the lens does have a deeper meaning, he fingers his own Maester's chain and collar. He does it actually quite a few times this chapter. And that the collars are actually tight around his neck. It tells us a little bit about the duality of the Maesters, as you were talking about the Barbary Dustin. There's knowledge... Of course, it comes with the forging of the chain, and when it comes to things representing other things, each link has another meaning, right? Each mm. of those little chain links shows that Lewin is familiar with this idea of representation, second dual meanings. But also, in a way, it tells us then another symbol for the maester's chain is the servitude behind it. And we're going to explore that a bit more one day with Sam's anxieties about joining the Citadel. You know, when we think about how they're stationed in this argument or this ongoing discussion and debate of what they should be doing in the face of everything with Robert, it's almost as if each of them has embodied one ideal, right? Lewin's ideal is serving, duty. Ned's ideal is honor, what the honorable thing is, and Catalan's ideal is family. Yes. Catalan is shaking, and she admits that she's afraid. Lewin attempts to retreat but is commanded to stay, and she reaches to take the letter, the furs falling from her nude body. In blue was the moon and falcon seal of House Aaron, the message from Liza. Catalan says, It will not make us glad. There is grief in this message, Ned. I can feel it. He tells her to open it. At first, it makes no sense to her, but she realizes it's in a private language she and Liza created as girls. This chapter, as we will see, is really fucking dense because this chapter formally does kick off the plot, right? Suddenly, John Aaron's death, which brought Robert here, is a murder mystery and everything is suspect. But I also love that there's this detail that Kat can feel that there is grief in the box again, her intuition working. And then all of this anticipation is built up, right? The box is for her. And then the book tells us just very simply, Catelyn broke the seal. Catelyn ends up being thrust unwittingly into the role of Pandora, opening the box that begins all of the sadness that ends up befalling her family. And, like, I wouldn't say this is really, like, Kat's fault because she's tricked, right? It's hard when you're tricked, but the framing of this moment is hearkening to another mythological woman set up to fail by the forces around her. And I think it means so much more because, of course, she'd put a lot of weight into this message from Liza. It's in their secret language, right? When just moments ago, as the chapter opens, she was reminiscing about this wonderful childhood she had with her sister and her brother. Cat being put into that role of Pandora and opening the box with everything coming out of it is so brilliant. I'm glad you connected it to this because that is what it feels like. First of all, what's in the box, right? That's my first thought. Second of all, it can be whatever you want, I guess, at this point. But we know what it is. It's that letter. Uh, it, it kills me that somehow Peter Baelish used Liza to this extent, even to the point of exploiting something so sensitive between the two sisters, their secret language. What a betrayal. What a master 40 chess player. Peter Baelish is just his power, his mind, really talented. I see a bright future ahead for him. Anyways, glossing over it. <sighs> Bitch gonna die. Yeah, I mean, Peter's manipulating everything, but it comes back to what you were saying earlier about Ned not realizing that his brother, in a way, Robert, mm -hmm. has changed over the years, and doing this read-through of Kat, it's interesting, Liza comes up in the first chapter, Liza comes up again here, we're gonna see Liza in this mm -hmm. book, 
that she herself hasn't considered, like, what if my sister has also changed in all of these years, right? Brynden warns her about it, but she, like Ned, is unwilling at first to believe it. And when she sees it, she's in disbelief. Yeah. I mean, so is Ned, right? It's jarring to find that out. Yeah. I mean, Ned literally says in chapter four, he's like, this is not the man I once knew. He looks completely different. He's gained Mm -hmm. a bunch and he's sadder than before, which really... He's sadder and much more callous to the fates of children. Hardened. Lewin's like, I don't want to be here for this conversation. He ends up staying, but he tries to withdraw. And Catelyn's like, no, we're going to need your counsel. (laughs) She throws back the furs that she was underneath. She climbs naked from the bed and Lewin averts his eyes. And even Ned is a little secondhand man-barrist. Chloe wrote this term um, about her nudity and asks, oh my god, Cat, what are you doing? And I'm just like, Ned, Ned, with your dog in the window. Ned, what are you doing? The double standards are outrageous here, is they all are. I'm saying. You know what? They are. Uh, <laughs> she's lighting a fire, obviously. And she shrugs into a dressing gown because men can't handle titties, but they let their balls fly around everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. And he starts it and he's like, Maester Lewin is here. And you're like half naked. And she's like, Maester Lewin delivered all our children. This is no time for false modesty. Right now, Ned? Really? She puts the paper into fire. She places heavier logs on it, and Ned crosses the room himself, asking what the message entailed. Yes, and of course, as she lights his fire, right, it's very much like how we talk about Westeros in this moment. Westeros was like this also at the beginning of Robert's Rebellion. It is a powder keg, and this letter is a spark, right? There's all this tension that's been building over years of people's plots during Robert's reign, and when the news finally hits, rather than a shiver in the cold as Kat was feeling moments ago, Kat is about action. She's lighting a fire, she's warming herself up, and she's doing what she believes must be done. Now, I love this analysis, but I do want to argue that Kat didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world was turning. I really had you. I had you. You really in the did. Oh, I had you. Were like, putty. And then you gotta and then get I, it together. You gotta get some thicker skin. I saw where it started going. Like as you were finishing that line, I was like, oh my god, she's gonna do it to me, isn't she? She really is. She really is. <laughs> Catalin calls it a warning. If they had the wit to listen, Liza says John Aaron was murdered by the queen. Everyone, welcome. It is the plot. The plot is here. It has arrived. Fanfare, trumpets. <sighs> Ned says, Liza must be sick with grief, Cat. She can't know what she says. But Catalin disagrees. Liza's impulsive, but this message was too carefully planned and too cleverly hidden. She must have known this message meant death if the wrong person read it. I mean, she's not wrong. Yeah. These things are true. It was too carefully planned and too cleverly hidden on purpose uh, to be believable. Yeah, so, that's true. I guess it doesn't matter because George doesn't think it matters. But I was just curious, like, who left this? I don't think he was thinking that far. I mean, the amount of detail in each book has ramped up as you go. You know, yeah. Game of Thrones detail is minimum and he wasn't thinking that far. But I'm like, I want to know who he has on the inside. Yeah, I want to know. Can you show me? Who left the box at Catelyn? Well, Lewin's store, whatever. The point is, I think you're right. I think George is like, I don't know, someone left it. He's like, just someone. 
There's like no reason to speculate some of these things. I know everyone wants to know every detail at all times. You know, I am one of those people too. So like, I understand that. But I guess my my point is like, I want to know who left it, but it must not matter. Yeah. <sighs> oh, well. Catalan looks to her husband and says, now they have no choice. He must be Robert's hand and go south to learn the truth. Again, Catalan is the family in this conversation. Ned has concluded the exact opposite. He thinks he should avoid the South and stay here. Yes, and because there's all this meta-commentary about reading, I think it's important that both Ned and Kat have read this message, right, somehow very differently, because Kat here is now very convinced that she is right. She's like, well, obviously this letter means now Ned must go to King's Landing, and he has to figure the mystery out. Can't he see? But that's just her specific interpretation of events. I don't think that's objective at all, but it also means that whoever plotted all of this very much read Catelyn, right, and knew how she would react and how to play her. But I think also part of that is, like, as you were saying, right, George is just like, how he wasn't thinking of who left the box. He's just like, this is the plot now. They gotta yeah, do these things. Cut and dry. There's it's a, a lot of, of that in a Game of Thrones. There's yeah. a lot of that in a Game of Thrones. It, it, it's very structured. Like, as far as, like, this happens, this happens, this happens. And you can see where his writing has spiraled out a little differently into detail and into, like, now all of this could mean something, or it could not. Smile. <laughs> and you won't know for over a decade. <laughs> Maester <laughs> Lewin plucks at his chain and interjects, the hand of the king has great power, power to find truth in his foster father's death, to bring his killers to justice, to protect Lady Erin and her son, if the worst is true. Ned glanced helplessly around the bedchamber. Catalan's heart went out to him, but she knew she could not take him in her arms just then. First, the victory must be won for her children's sake. I love this line so much. What a fucking banger line that Catalan's like, nah, mm-mm. You know what? I put up with a lot of bullshit, Ned, but I'm sorry. You got to get there yourself on this one. I'm not doing it. The victory's got to be won. I'm not caving. I have to keep my kids safe. I am keeping this family safe. Uh, also, I mean, I did just put out, you know, like, don't do me like this right now, Ned. Don't do me like this. Yeah, absolutely. And she knows if she shows him softness, he might go soft, right? He might be like, oh, it's okay then. She actually is playing this like a card game, right? Her next card, she's like, you love Robert like a brother. Would you leave your brother surrounded by Lannisters? Yeah, I think earlier, and, and I, I wasn't thinking at the moment, you were saying that Ned's I his ideal, yes, is honor. But mm -hmm. in practice... His ideal ends up being family, and that's what motivates him here, right? Because he says yeah. it's what leads to his death when he's like, I'm not, I'm gonna sacrifice my honor for Sansa. He sacrifices his honor for John. And here he says, mm -hmm. The others take you all, he mutters, turning away. And then he's silent for a few moments as Kat and Lewin wait, and Ned gives a silent farewell to his home. He finally turns back, his voice is tired and full of melancholy, and the glitter of wetness in his eyes. Oh my god, Ned is crying! Yes, so. We'll talk about it in just a minute, but it does seem that every single time he turns away, it is to hide tears, and it is because Ned can't meet Catalan's eyes, because when he looks into her eyes, he will either do a combination of things, like A, break down and cry, 
B, break down and tell her the truth after all of these years because it's built up and is weighing so heavily on him and he can't keep it in anymore. He just had to keep it in from his best friend, quote unquote. He has to keep it in all the time. Everyone's cruel to John or everyone looks at him differently and all he can think is he doesn't deserve this and it's too much and it's a big a lot. And anyways, I digress. Every time he turns away from her in this conversation, pay attention to what he's saying family you know would you leave your brother surrounded by lannisters all he can think about are the lannisters being the cause of those targaryen children death he turns Uh away because he's thinking about those children wrapped up in the red cloth to hide the blood yes absolutely and it's not just that he's thinking about his own family right as we see in this passage his his blood family he says Mm -hmm. my father went south once to answer the summons of a king He never came home again. A different time, Maester Lewin said. A different king. Yes, Ned said dully. He seated himself in a chair by the hearth. Catelyn, you shall stay here in Winterfell. His words were like an icy draft through her heart. No, she said, suddenly afraid. Was this to be her punishment? Never to see his face again, nor to feel his arms around her? Yes, Ned said, in words that would brook no argument. You must govern the North in my stead while I run Robert's errands. There must always be a Stark in Winterfell. Rob is fourteen. Soon enough, he will be a man grown. He must learn to rule, and I will not be here for him. Make him part of your councils. He must be ready when his time comes. God's will, not for many years. Maester Lewin murmured. It's a few months. <sighs> God. Yeah. Ned not being able to meet Catelyn's eyes or Lewin's eyes. The other thing that's noticeable is that when he turns back after taking the moment to look away and collect himself, he comes back with the Lord's voice each time. Uh, Ned said in words that could brook no argument. Every time he comes back, it is the final definitive answer. And Mm -hmm. it's pretty apparent because we get the flashback in a little bit here to Catelyn remembering another time where Ned's word was final on a subject. That's true. Absolutely. The Lord's face. We'll come back to that in a bit. We know this now because it's a reread, but both Ned and Cat are reacting to their experiences again with their own childhood families here, right? It's Cat's ties with Liza and her memory of Liza. That's part of why she goads Ned into going south. She trusts Liza through all of that and, and their childhood language. But it's also Ned's loss of his family and memories of them that cause him to not want to go <laughs> because it's, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. He's like, when Starks go south, we die, right? Yeah. And coming back to what we said the last chapter, Catelyn's first chapter, again, I think it's important that Ned trusts Cat to run the household in his stead and be the one to raise Rob as a leader. We see that Ned trusts her with a lot of responsibilities, but also Cat knows how to groom a lord as for a while. Hosser had also groomed her to be the Lady of River Run, right? So she knows how to handle this. And I mean, she's not the only lady to ever be left in charge of their house in dire circumstances, right? I mean, we see it with House Glover, as we discussed during Davos' chapters. Lady Sabelle Glover, right, was in charge of Deepwood Mott. But there is, I think, a lot of weight to the way that this exchange goes and the way that Ned trusts her. Yeah, there's a lot of trust. And in the North especially, right, we see that 
it's not just uh, Cattle and Abel to step in, who specifically sure. is groomed as heir, but the North's future is female, as we later see, because females are forced into that role. Ready or not, here your husband goes, he's dead. Yeah, that is true. We see that with a lot of the Northern houses. Ned also entrusts Mr. Lewin with his family, uh, says that he trusts him as he would his own blood again. That extended family thing going on. And then I'm I'm just, again, being sad about Mr. Lewin, thinking about how he kind of dies uh, because he loves the Stark kids and just being sad about it. But at least his blood goes into the weirwood. Oh, yes. Helpful for Bran, right? Yum. Mm. <laughs> Baked oats. <laughs> oh, my God. What are we talking about? <laughs> Ned asks Lewin to teach his son what he must know, and Catelyn finds the courage to ask, finally, what about the other children? He holds her face in his hands and gives her Rickon, but the others he must take. There's a lot of interesting back and forth between Ned and Catelyn in this chapter. In this one, Catelyn and Ned have opposite tactics, right? She refuses to hold Ned until Ned agrees to what she says, whereas Ned, in telling her what she doesn't want to hear goes and holds her again when it's something that's different from what she wants but at the same time it's worth noting that the power dynamic is different here right uh, coming back to that lord's voice cat cannot decide for ned what ned should do because i mean first of all the job offer is in his name but also he's the lord and he's the man of yes. the house he holds the power not just in winterfell but all of the north right whereas when ned goes to cat with a decision that she does not like you know, she can try to dissuade him as she does here when it comes to taking this job, but ultimately Ned gets to make that decision. And Kat, though she does not agree with him as to which kids go and which ones do not, she'll protest a little, but she doesn't fight back that hard because in her mind, as well as Ned having all that power, the societal rules that she grew up with tell her that this is in fact the best path for her children based on those rules. I love that you brought up that he's the man of the house because he is. Mm -hmm. This is his decision overall. She's not the Lord of Winterfell. She's the Lady mm -hmm. of Winterfell by marriage, by proxy, but she's not the Lord of Winterfell and she doesn't get to make those decisions. And it's kind of a game of her crossing the line a little bit here. And Lewin is there to reel back in and kind of provide that mm -hmm. sensible other ground so that like, she doesn't overstep her boundary as a lady. That's why she steps back and allows Lewin to kind of step in and say certain things here and there that she can't and just holds her tongue and lets Ned get there because it's not her place and she knows that. Yes. And it is a maester's place to advise. Yeah. And he's a man, so. Also that. Also that. You know, uh, there's something about just the frequency of the voice that I've heard that scientifically they just hear each other better. It must be. It must be. It must be. Catelyn says she could not bear the children being taken, and Ned's like, well, you must. <laughs> not, he doesn't actually say it that way. He's much nicer about it because they have a relationship, right? Uh, but he explains that Sansa, as as you said, Catelyn must put Joffrey, uh, give no suspicion to their cause, and Arya must learn the ways of a southern court because he's like, so, you know, sooner or later, she's going to have to marry as well. And Catelyn thinks that Sansa would shine in the south, and Arya would get the refinement she needs. Yes, and she thinks, reluctantly, she let go of them in her heart. But not Bran. Never Bran. <sighs> There's so much talk in this chapter for her of letting go of her children, and it kind of reminds me back, way, way back in the Wayback Machine, when we did Sansa chapters, 
and Ned chapters even. And that kind of pairing between them where when Ned kills Lady or deci- decides what must be done for Lady, I should say, he he thinks about Sansa that he disengages from her. And we see mm-hmm. him literally disengage from her, right? And push her away after that moment. And it- it's so sad for her, for Catelyn, that she has to let go of her children Especially as things progress, she continues and she lets go of Rickon, for example, more. Yeah, she does. And something interesting, right, is something you were comparing to earlier. Like, her favorite of her children is her second son. Ned's a second son. And Malario's second child, right, gets gets put somewhere else. And she's like, that's it. That's enough for me. And, and she's like, I'm done with this. But Catelyn takes it. She accepts it. Yeah. She begs Ned for the love he bears her. To leave seven-year-old Bran at Winterfell, but Ned says he was eight when he was fostered at the Eyrie, and Bran may be the ticket to smoothing the bad relationship growing between Joffrey and Rob. Sir Roderick had told him all about this. Let him grow up with the young princes. Let him become their friend as Robert became mine. Our house will be the safer for it. Was your house safer for being Robert's friend? Questions. Hmm. Questions that I have. I will say, though, that, again, coming back to the back and forth that Ned and Kat have in this chapter, Ned turns the tables on Catelyn here using the exact same arguments that she used earlier on as to why Ned should go south, in terms of what is good for their family, what is good for the royal family, and here he puts it in the terms of Joffrey and Rob's relationship, as opposed to Joffrey and Sansa's, but it's most pointed in Cat resisting Bran's departure, and she says he's only seven, and Ned points out that he himself was eight, he himself. Just a year older, when he was fostered at the Eyrie, which compare that to when Ned was saying, Sansa's only 11, she's too young to be betrothed, and then Cat was like, well, she herself was betrothed at 12, also mm-hmm. just a year older. Yeah, and there are a couple other hypocrisies that they both kind of play with as we move forward that doesn't get called out as much that I will bring up in just a little. So we'll come back to this for sure. I don't know if it's a hypocrisy or if it's just like... I mean, it's like a argument hypocrisy. Yeah, argument thing going on. It's like an argument like, well, you're a hypocrite because it's this and I'm right. No, you're wrong. And he's this old. And because you know what I mean? Like, it's like that back and forth. Like, all right, hypocrite. Well, all right. Well, maybe you're the hypocrite then. And then it's like, you guys are just going to fuck again. Yeah, they're going (sighs) to. I mean, they're going to wait till, you know, Ned recharges and then they're going to go at it again. Well, I mean, Lewin's still there. So. Yeah, I mean, they gotta open the windows first, right? Everyone's gotta see them first before Ned can oh get it Oh my god. <sighs> Catelyn knew that Ned was right, but it didn't make it hurt less. Only Rob and Rickon would be left to her. She felt lonely already. Winterfell was a vast place. She tells Ned to keep Bran off the walls. <laughs> he loves to climb. Oh. <clears throat> and he kisses the tears from her eyes before they can fall, thanking her and telling her he knows this is hard. But Maester Lewin calls out the elephant in the room. Why, Maester Lewin? Why? <laughs> Ruins a sweet, tender moment. What of Jon Snow? And Catelyn tenses up, and Ned feels the anger, and he pulls away immediately. Many men fathered bastards. Catelyn had grown up with that knowledge. It came as no surprise to her in the first year of her marriage to learn that Ned had fathered a child on some girl Chance met on campaign. He had a man's needs, after all, and they spent that year apart, Ned off at war in the south while she remained safe in her father's castle at Riverrun. 
Her thoughts were more of Rob, the infant at her breast, than of the husband she scarcely knew. Does Ned have needs like that? I'm just saying. I, we don't know him. Apparently he has different needs. Mm-hmm. Like, showy needs. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a grower, not a shower, Chloe. <sighs> <sighs> Chloe's like, why did I agree to spend years of my life with this person? This is marriage, too, where we're dealing with our own little hypocrisies and back and forth in this, in this episode. Um, anyways, Catelyn knows that Ned would see to the child's needs, but Stark men are hashtag not like other men, and Ned did much more than just see to John's needs. Right, he went a little too far above and beyond for her. He brought John home, called him son, and then when the war was over, when you know the kid was already there, and Cat's like, "Oh, I got here, and there's another kid here, and I've got a kid, and John and his wet nurse are already here," and and for her that one hurt, especially because Ned wouldn't speak of the mother. But of course, I mean, as anything like this, rumors are out there. Ugh. They whispered of Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning, deadliest of the seven knights of Ares's Kingsguard, and of how their young lord had slain him in single combat. And they told how afterward Ned had carried Sir Arthur's sword back to the beautiful young sister who awaited him in a castle called Starfall on the shores of the summer sea. The Lady Ashara Dane, tall and fair with haunting violet eyes. It had taken her a fortnight to marshal her courage, but finally, in bed one night, Catelyn had asked her husband the truth of it, asked him to his face. That was the only time in all their years Ned ever frightened her. Never ask me about John, he said, cold as ice. He is my blood, and that is all you need to know. And now, I will learn where you heard that name. My lady. She had pledged to obey. She told him, and from that day on the whispering had stopped, and Ashara Dane's name was never heard in Winterfell again. Whoever John's mother had been, Ned must have loved her fiercely, for nothing Catelyn said would persuade him to send the boy away. It was his sister. Of course he did. You love your, your sister, sister. But not like that. <sighs> it's the only thing Catelyn can't forgive. She loved Ned with all her heart, but she could never find it in her to love his bastard son, John. She could overlook a dozen bastards if they were out of sight, as we see other women in the series do. But John was always there, and as he grew, he looked more like Ned than any of the sons she gave him. So, we see a little bit of that Catelyn that we were introduced to in the first chapter. The one who's not afraid to be blunt, to be straightforward in, in asking questions or bring it breaking news. Because here we find out in this chapter, it's only been two weeks after Ned got back from this war. Ned, actually, technically, Catelyn got back and met her husband in true, right, after this war. And Cat just straight up asks him about John's parentage, no tiptoeing around it. Yeah, I I love that because 
again, Kat takes the agency she can where she can take it, right? Like, she Mm -hmm. will be bold when she can be bold in the position to be bold. And I think this really brings up a whole entire, like, a lot of themes are brought up here, right? Uh, The seed is strong is a hurdle that's brought up in the story really strongly for Game of Thrones. And Mm -hmm. obviously it's brought up through the Heritage book, as well as serving as an analog for the truth of bastardy in the story for Robert, but not just for him, right? Like, Catelyn is also in on this theme. Catelyn's seed is strong comes in at her desire for her northern children to stop looking like freaking redheaded stepchildren, right? Like, she's like, why can't I birth a child that has brunette hair and can be the heir to the Stark line? Ah, uh... It doesn't matter, as we learned. Like, that does not fucking matter. Rob is accepted because he earns the loyalty, right, from the lords. Uh, Just like the other children will have earned respect of some of these lords to come in their plots. I expect Sansa will earn that respect with the Veilmen and with the Northmen. Jon, Bran. Keeping on that seat is strong thought, though. We even have Sansa's coloring as Elaine, right? Her bastard coloring actually makes her look more stark with the dark hair, but her normal coloring has Catelyn's Tully coloring. It's kind of an analog with Joffrey's bastardy, obviously, for very obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. Liza thinks it means it's about Sweet Robin, which kind of disguises Sansa and Ned's later realization slash make it a holy cow moment. But that's not even what the Seed is Strong is about, right? It's not even most about Joffrey, because the Seed is Strong is actually overarching about Jon Snow. Right, Jon mm-hmm. Snow and the Stark seed being strong in comparison to the Targaryen genes. And here it comes up with Catelyn's fears of Jon having a claim on Winterfell. They're true in a way, but not in like a usurping or desire way, just in the fateful way that Rhaegar and Lyanna fucked a bunch in the Tower of Joy. Stark looks, Targaryen looks, seed is strong, that's the big plot. And we see that torch get carried on with Davos for Edric Storm. And even an extent of this plot in Rickon being on Skagos as a Stark king, possibly. Mm-hmm. I love that George also loops in another big plot device here, right? His purple herring as well. Having Ashara Dane come into the plot regarding Jon Snow's parentage is huge. Ashara could cover up if Jon's born with purple eyes out of nowhere, right? Like, that would be a real shame. Hopefully John's not going to get blonde hair, but worse comes to worse. The Danes have some Targish features. They can make it happen. The finality of Ashara being used as a scapegoat, her name was never heard in Winterfell again, it helps cement those walls that Kat and Ned have between them. It's a complex and really unfair situation for all involved. Not just unfair for Ashara being put into this role of John's mother, not just by Catelyn, but by the rumor mill and on a bigger scale being used as a cover-up for what could probably be called treason, right? And keep some war going on for a while. Ashara dying sure was a convenient way to make sure no one ever knew if she was or wasn't John's mom, huh? Anyway, Catelyn doesn't feel as much blame if she believes Ashara was the mom. She doesn't. Uh, I'm sure she questions that narrative in her heart. I'm sure she still thinks that there isn't a truth, but She doesn't have anything else to settle for it. And Ned's outrageous, don't ever ask me about that again. Don't say that name again in Winterfell. Uh, That solidified everyone to go, oh, so it's Ashara. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely (laughs) Ashara. That sounds like someone who fucked Ashara Dane, what they would say. Yeah. They're politicking in a way. (sighs) 
yeah, it made it believable for everyone in the town, and that makes it so that it wrongfully informs Catalan going forward. His finality is what Catalan chooses to believe because it's all she has to believe. She ends up throwing part of this knowledge uh, in and projecting it on the dead chick, right? Who more than likely didn't fuck Ned. And uses that to kind of avoid accountability for her cruel behavior towards John in some manners. It's one of the few handful of things that Catalan's done wrong in her life, right? Like, we will own up for like three to five of them at most. Funny enough, most of the issues people have with Catalan's character are about limited knowledge. Actions she takes based on very limited knowledge compared to what we the readers have already learned from other POVs. This is kind of one of them, but it's a double-sided piece because it's meant to lead us astray from John's parentage. This is Mm -hmm. meant for us to also be confused. So George is not only using this to inform us on Catalan's emotions and Ned's emotions in the moment and kind of this big rift between them over this woman, but it more prominently is there to kind of lead us away from RLJ, you know, Rhaegar, Lyanna, John, because we only believe in canon in this podcast. Mm-hmm. I think, like you said, there's a lot going on here with how Catelyn was raised as well, the ambitions her father had for her, how she was groomed as heir before Edmure. She's definitely shrewd to an extent, and in this moment, Hoster didn't really raise her to be a yes queen, right? Like, she's not out there mm. like pink pussy hat. Um, <laughs> Catelyn is, you know, she's out for herself because she's out to protect her and hers, her and her family. She's the mother wolf in this situation. And yes, I mean, he raised her on duty and servitude to cope with the pressures of fundamental tutelage. She wasn't going to be able to get the closure she needs on if or if not Ashara Dane is the mom of this kid. And so instead, she chose to put down some woman, any woman, and that child to cope. Absolutely. She can't do what Malario did and was like, I'm out. Right? Yeah. Where would she she go? She couldn't do that. And so she internalizes it. And unfortunately, she displaces it on John, as we'll talk about in a second. But as you said, it's the area in which, you know, both Ned and Kat, they... Kat has chosen to partially because Ned has sort of led it that way. They try and shift the blame on these dead, you know, ex exes, right? Mm-hmm. Allegedly, allegedly. Brandon's um, fault, Ashara's fault, right? So they don't have to look at it in the face of the other, so that they can go on living and and not have to address that wall that's in between them because it is a huge wall in their relationship, right? And it's something where, interestingly, as we. That, that's a big part, right? You were talking about limited information, but it's about that sort of gap that people have with one another, trust, love, and the connections people have and what that means for how they develop. That's a big part of the themes and, and what A Song of Ice and Fire explores, especially as the series deepens. And we actually get a much more, as, as we all know, intimate view of Ned, right? That's why we're able to understand what's in his heart and what the secrets that he's hiding are, whereas Catelyn never gets that view. Ned doesn't even show himself crying to her. Yeah, he turns around and shows her the Lord's face like there was never that moment in between. And I think that they have beautiful tender moments and their communication. If they just improved the pipeline and told each other their real feelings and just told the truth, which isn't accepted in their marriage or their society built around them, I get it. But like, if that happened, they could fix it, but they won't. That, that's what this chapter shows us, is that it's over. The, this is how their relationship will someday end with this rift 
her dying. I mean, she literally thinks at one point, like, I was, I was good enough, right? Like, I had all the love I could want. It was a good enough love. I never had any qualms, right? Didn't I? Uh, yeah. Everything unravels at the end for her. Everything is unreal. Everything she knew just fucking murdered her. Literally. It reminds me of, I think, the opening line of Anna Karenina, and it is, I think, very much mm. at the heart of a lot of what we see throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. The opening line is, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Even though the Stark family in many ways seems so perfect, there is its own unique unhappiness. Then there's more unhappiness where more of them die. <laughs> that That's even more unhappy <laughs> than, than yeah. some of these parts. But nevertheless, Catelyn says that John must go, and Ned responds, but John and Rob are close, and he had hoped, and then Catelyn cuts him off, saying that John cannot stay here, he's Ned's son, not hers, and she will not have him. It's so sad because yeah. that was so close, that was so close to Ned, right, to, yeah. to him in the godswood, his uh, let them grow up like brothers, and let my lady wife find it in her heart to forgive. He prayed all the time. That's what he prayed in the... Ah! That's what he was doing in the godswood all the time, Eliana. It was, and uh, we see that later on, but it was. <sighs> Catelyn thinks it's hard, but it's the truth, right? Ned isn't doing the boy any kindness in leaving him at Winterfell where he's unwanted by her if she's going to be Lady of the House. He gives her an anguished look and finally says, There's no place for him in the South. Catelyn, a boy with a bastard's name, you know what they'll say of him. He'll be shunned. And all I hear when he says that is Liana in his ear. Promise me, Ned. What did yes. she ask him? You know, keep him safe. Let him grow up like your son. You know, treat him like you would your child, Ned, please. This is Unless not what he, he wanted for promise. him. Yeah. yeah. Un Unless the promise well, was Ned put him on the throne and he was like, I don't, I don't know about that. To crown, his, <sighs> crown him is to kill him, but... I mean, either is pretty shitty here, right? He yeah. broke either, depending on exactly. which way it could have gone. Either of those ways that we're yes. describing is broken, right? He, uh, yes. And I do think he broke the promise in a manner. Like, one way, yes, he kept him safe, and I'm sure that's part of the promise, but in a way, emotionally, as we're going to talk about, he didn't constantly keep him safe. He couldn't find a way to balance the secret Mm -hmm. and the lifestyle of it so it's really sad and this line is also really sad this one stood out especially with you know Stoneheart as a theme oh, but Catelyn yeah. armored her heart against the mute appeal in her husband's eyes yeah she don't speak but she remembers it's a sad way to think that they're gonna part but they at least see each other again yep one last time oh, yeah they begin to argue, though, in, in this moment, and Catelyn tells him about the rumor mill of, like, they say that Robert has fathered a dozen bastards himself. And that's like, yeah, but, like, none of them have been seen at court. And he's like, the Lannister woman has seen to that. And it, probably in Catelyn's mind, she's like, hello. That's what I said. If you remember what I said just a chapter ago, Ned, in my last chapter... Well, she's also just like, but what about me? What about my say? Right. What about my pride and status also? Uh, he asks her how she can be so cruel. And John's only a boy. And he starts to go on. You know, John's 14. He's just a boy. 
mm-hmm. and Maester Lewin cuts in, and I personally always wonder. He he seemed to get very upset here, and I was like, "Is this it? Was he about to tell her?" Because I think every moment in this chapter, he's like about to tell her. He's yeah. just a boy. He he, and he's gonna run out of words eventually and blurt it out. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it, it's so sad because he he doesn't want to take the autonomy away from John, right? Yeah. Uh, in this moment, he doesn't want to take autonomy over John's body and life because John is not his son. It's very mm-hmm. apparent as someone who knows what the word canon means. Moments ago, he told her Rob needs to become a man. He's 14 mm-hmm. now. It's time. Just last week, he said Rickon needs to grow the fuck up. But he's, <laughs> he's treating John differently. He's like, Rickon's forward. It's time for him to pay some fucking rent Rickon's in this house. Forward. He's a man grown. And then he's like, no, John's just a boy. <laughs> Yeah, and and we know the different treatment, right? Like, we know why. We know he does not feel ownership to John's body and choices because John is not his son. And Mm -hmm. it's so sad, but Catelyn doesn't know that. And she sees this as a special treatment. Why are you being so easy on your bastard son who came first before us and not on our kids who you have given no thought to this whole time of what the fuck they're going to do with their lives. So Catelyn doesn't see that. And she sees it as John being cared for in a special manner differently when it's more just Ned's depression and acedia rising up, right? He's ready to admit it all if he even makes eye contact with this woman. He is like panicking, panicking. And there's something harsh and pained here that Catelyn brings up the rumors, right? And she says specifically... They. She doesn't Mm -hmm. name who they is, but they are spreading these rumors about court, which shows how pained she was from the previous rumors from they, which were just Mm -hmm. brought up, right? The same they who told us about Ashara Dane is likely where she heard this gossip or similar. So she's going for the kill here by saying, they say Robert has fathered a dozen bastards. Right? Like, just after something was kind of brought up in the realm, things are getting icy. This is kind of a gut punch by going for the kill. She's not allowed to speak about they, usually. Right. Absolutely. And, yeah, this is this is about, also, as you said, her pride. But, and it's important that we get this chapter and this moment from Catelyn's perspective and not Ned's. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, Ned's perspective, as we know, would be all about Lyanna and Rhaegar mm-hmm. and, and John's place in all For of it. some reason, question mark. Huh, I just can't figure out why. It must be because John is a Shara Dane's kid. Oh my god. But yeah, that's that's why it comes through Catelyn's perspective. Because it is shrouded in mystery. But also, she can't understand, right? Because Ned doesn't tell people for understandable reasons. Because, you know, he, he's lived through this whole thing where, like, he's like, oh, yeah, all these kids are cool with murdering children. That's why he's like, Ned, John's just a boy. But anyways, Ned is in a very difficult position. And he's put all of his family, including John, in a very difficult position as well. Because, I mean, Rhaegar and Lyanna, that's a big part of Ned's reluctance to bring John to court, right? He's putting him in the place that, A, led to, like, a lot of horrible shit happening to his family, but also in proximity of a lot of people in King's Landing, right? Like, he's already worried about if Robert finds out that John's Rhaegar's son 
I mean, who knows what Robert's wrath will do, and that's why he hit him in the first place. But also, with John's disposition, yes, he looks very much like a Stark, but what if there are undertones of him that someone notices, and they're like, you know, it's really interesting, uh, Rhaegar used to do that too, or Rhaegar also looked a little bit like that. You know, your cheekbones, your cheek structure, a little bit mm-hmm. like Rhaegar, right? That's that's where all those people live, in King's Landing. That saw Rhaegar every day. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That served Rhaegar. But it also shows us that, as we know, Jon is this huge area of weakness for Catelyn in many ways. Because, yes, of course, as we'll see in this chapter, sure, Cat does fear Jon's threat to her children's claim. But she also just, in general, clearly dislikes his presence in Winterfell. As we see from this chapter, she may not have necessarily disliked John himself, but the years, it's 14 years gnawing at her, this dishonor, this wedge that is between her and her husband, whom she loves. It's a different thing than Brandon's ghost. There's nothing you can do about Brandon, right? If he's dead, there's nothing you can do about Ashara, who's allegedly the mother, right? Who's dead, right? Mm-hmm. But Catelyn does feel that there is something that Ned can do uh, in regards to this for Catelyn right? In regards to where John is kept. And so Catelyn has evolved all of this into displacing all that frustration into John's person. And that's really clear here, right? Because what Catelyn's saying here is ridiculous. If she's so afraid of John's claim, sending him to King's Landing with Ned makes no fucking sense politically. It, it, it's literally like a bigger risk. It's not a good move. Because in my opinion, sending John with Ned to King's Landing actually legitimizes John politically, right? He would be bringing John into the center of Westerosi power, which also, in theory, would allow him to build the sorts of political connections and allies that someone would need if they were going to be like, yeah, what if I raised a coalition and took Winterfell? Like, King's Landing is the place to do it. But that's the depths mm-hmm. of how badly Catelyn does not want John to stay here, that it clouds that judgment. But at the same time, it's really, I think, deeply unfair of Ned to leave John in Catelyn's care for both John and Catelyn. It's, it's unfair to both of them entirely because we saw through John's chapters that we did already the sort of trauma that he's still very much like unpacking it and learning from Catelyn as an adult figure. It was so bad that it, that it, affects even Rob, her eldest son, and, and affects Rob's own decisions politically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this Because Catelyn was a figure with power in John's life, and a figure that excluded him. And it's also quite sad, considering that Ned and Cat are fighting over keeping the other children who gets to take which kids, when they're saying that neither of them in this moment can take John, right? John doesn't know it, but he's, like, unwanted in this conversation, But it's also, I think, unfair of Ned to make Catelyn responsible for raising a child that is not hers, that has been a blight to her honor, and that he has allowed to be this huge block in their relationship that he hasn't tried to fix or address at all. And I don't think the solution is for Cat to just get over it. Again, it's 14 years of this, and that's not going to be undone easily. It is Ned's responsibility, especially as we see that Cat you know, she may have had a say, she may have had more of a voice in her house than perhaps most other ladies in Westeros, and she was really fortunate that the system worked out for her in most things, except for this one thing, but ultimately she does not have the final voice, she does not have the final say in Winterfell. And this is most definitely not her child. She does not have the say over his body. I mean, yeah. 
Ned himself is having issues deciding, you know, what to do with John due to the autonomy over his body. And like, Catelyn is not the person to make that decision. She even says, you know, Maester Lewin brings it up. She didn't, but she thought about it and she thought about it. And she was like, what if I say it? And then Maester Lewin doesn't. She's like, thank the fucking gods. Someone said it. So I didn't have to. Because it was a point of contention and immediately it fills her whole body with rage and he feels it. And it it isn't her responsibility to raise the child. I'm very lucky that I have a stepdad that decided, like, you know, I'm going to step up and raise this kid. But that doesn't always happen. And he had a choice, right? Like, your your stepfather Mm -hmm. loves your mother and chose to enter that and love you. Catelyn did not. Yes, exactly. And I would also say, once more, and span on this later but he should have just left him at starfall anyways but i understand you know to some extent why he doesn't because if if catelyn's concerned about the threat that john plays towards winterfell imagine the threat that john plays towards the iron throne (laughs) in actuality but yeah as you know eventually we'll find out maybe one day in like the (laughs) the 13th book uh Maester Lewin offers a solution. Uncle Benjen had come to Maester Lewin, offering for the boy to join the Night's Watch. Catelyn says nothing, because she knows that Ned has to decide this on his own. He needs to himself, and she wouldn't be welcome to the conversation, but she wants to kiss Maester Lewin for the solution. Giving John to the brothers, letting Benjen be a father to the boy, a son Benjen would never have. Yes, so it's... An interesting and shrewd argument for Kat to make here in the context of these past few chapters that are built around family, as we've been discussing, that isn't necessarily directly tied through blood. Benjen and, and John kind of are, right? But in drawing on the sympathies of the relationships that Ned has with both John Aaron and Robert Aaron, and that these ties are strong enough to push Ned into going south. But in regard to those familial ties, it is interesting that Ned doesn't pull rank here, right? But it's probably for the best because, again, it is cruel to both John and to Kat to to put them in that situation. But in his protest to Kat, right, and, and this is telling, he is pleading for sympathy for John, that John is only a boy, right? As, as though he's only a boy alone in the world. But at no point does he ever tell Catelyn, it's because John is my son. I mean, and Catelyn does throw that in his face at one point, but Ned knows not to do that, not only because it would backfire for him, but also he doesn't have the right to say it. And he's never said Mm -hmm. it like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the immediate response is, well, what are they? He's like, he's my blood. He he says that. Yep. (sighs) Catelyn thinks John would take the oath eventually and father no sons to contest with her grandchildren. (laughs) Uh, True, but you know, I mean. Yeah. To an extent. We just don't know. Well, we don't know. You know, I mean, like, maybe maybe he figured that out on his own, right? By Mm -hmm. dying and then getting brought (laughs) back to life. We don't know, as we've we've all been trying to figure it out. Well, Ned reflects, even bastards can rise in the Night's Watch. Ah, like John, who dies and he's gonna rise. But reiterates, he is so young. Were he a man grown? Sure, but 14, again... If Rob only he were also... four years old. <laughs> if only he was fucking... Rickon, we're gonna need you to start taking over the farming every day. I mean, that's <sighs> kind of what Manderly wants him to do. Yeah, Rickon, that's true. you're king now. <laughs> I think that's the whole thing about parenting, right? It's just like, how much child labor can we get for free? 
Lewin, Lewin agrees it's a hard sacrifice, but these are hard times, and his road is no crueler than Ned's or Catalan's. That's true, to be they fair. They all die. <sighs> yeah, Catelyn and they thinks, both get brought back to life. Yeah, two of them come back. To, oh, all three, the pigeon. Oh, the pigeon, or ice, depending. Yeah, depending on where you think Ned is currently. He's in one of them. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Catelyn does think immediately of the three children she must lose, thinking how it's not easy to keep silent. Part of me's like, yes, Catelyn, we know. Your life is hard. (laughs) Catelyn's like, yes, I know their lives are hard and their paths are hard, but mine's harder. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. It's like, things are hard for me. But Ned, Ned's life is also actually very hard. He's gazing out the window away from them and then finally turns back saying, I will speak to Ben. Lewin says, all right, uh, when are we going to tell John? And that's like, I'll do it when I must. He wants to let John enjoy the last few days at Winterfell. And then says, summer will end soon enough. And childhood as well. When the time comes, I will tell him myself. I love that Ned's like, we leave in a fortnight. I'm going to let him enjoy it for a few days because he's a trying to figure out ways he can reverse all of it, right? In his head, he's like, how can I get out of I this? I can fix it! <laughs> <sighs> but he's gonna find out there's no fixing it. And B, what are you gonna tell him, Ned? Are you gonna show up and be like, well, John, I'm about to ruin your life. You've been wrongfully treated as a bastard, Cinderella, for the past 14 years. And then, you know, tell him, so you can go to the Night's Watch, which is what's planned for you, or you can do nothing else because I can't help you. Bye, good luck. Like, what, 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 what is he going to say to him? You know, like, you've lived 14 years a lie with this boy. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, on the fortnight of this important event for his life, he has nowhere to go, no money. You're not going to give him gold and a keep somewhere else and say, hey, there's an empty keep we're going to repurpose. You can just live there and do whatever the fuck you want. Like, this is it? You're just going to be like, yep, yeah, you know what? He- I'm just going to let you go to this penal colony. Obviously, be like know how or when or what to say to him to deliver this information and like obviously is all like oh we'll talk about your mother next time son and there's no next time but it's just yeah. what what's the that's plan that's a show Phil? only right i think that was show only wasn't it yeah well good I mean, since been we like- are a canon series about the show that the books covered you could be like john i found out uh you have this really hot aunt across the sea and you know your people you were into that oh my god i do think this actually might be where that show line came from that i'll tell him myself when the time Mm -hmm. comes i'll tell him myself i think they adapted that you know that he then says to john oh someday i'll tell you um which of course wrenches the heartstrings right the most because you're like no uh but john's fate is sealed here like there's Unless literally Ned paid for a keep or took him and dropped him off at another friend's house, a lord's house. Again, should have just dropped him in Starfall, you know, sent him along the way. His fate is sealed. Obviously, we need John at the wall and he's wonderful and he's saved and kicked some ass and done some really great things in the story. So, like, this isn't for me necessarily. Like, I don't personally. I'm not like, take him there. I'm glad he's at the wall. I'm glad the story we got. But it's just like, what's the plan, Phil? What's the plan, Ned? What were you going to do? Yeah, Ned's plan is like, all right, I guess that takes care of that. And he's like, I'll deal with, I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it when I come back north. Which, I guess I, I didn't think that was literally his plan. That I think was it his. Is. 
that was his plan because as we remember when he's thinking of retiring from the handship he's like this is great i'm gonna go back north it's gonna be sick uh, i'm gonna i've been wrongfully discharged from my time in king's landing and he's like it's fine i'm getting sent to the wall and i'm gonna get to spend time with john and i'm gonna tell him the truth and I, that might be where the line from the show comes from because he's like yeah. we're gonna talk about it now that like john can't do anything because he took an oath he's like foster son's totally gonna keep with this oath <sighs> yeah it's uh it's rough because there's just no there's no answer there's no right answer to it unfortunately there really isn't there's no way that john like, could just learn about his parentage. It, it, it Obviously, the dramatic tension in the book series would not be worth it. There'd be no story. Uh, but there's no way Ned could have even done this at this point. It was already sealed. And that's very much what this last line here is about, too, right? Summer and childhood are ending soon. Not just for John and the other Stark children, but also, of course, for Ned, who has experienced this before. That's why he's so sad. But it's also ending for Catelyn, right? Because the chapter opens with the warmth of Winterfell gradually becomes colder as Catelyn notes and the plot starting to be like it's here I'm here we're doing it the story and the childhood and the innocence that ends is just as much about Catelyn's storyline right as as Alex pointed out in their email last time maybe in one of the areas that we cut uh regarding innocence and experience and mm -hmm. those poems but it's it's for everyone in Westeros and the reader the idea of George ushering us into this book and then chopping off our characters' heads and ruining our lives and murdering our husbands and wives and shitting on our fields. It's, it, I'm getting sick of it, George. I'm honestly kind of getting sick of you murdering my people. That's why he stopped. <laughs> well, the good news is he hasn't done it in 11 years. Uh <laughs> it's fine. I'm just kidding. He's actively murdering all the characters I love right now, and I love that Summer for him. and childhood have ended for us, you know, me being two years younger than Catelyn. It reminds me of a lyric from Summer by the Manimals from the album 7, a Game of Thrones concept album, which is the shit. If you haven't heard this album, it is, it is a bop. The lyric is, is it true that summer's over? I thought this would go much slower. Can't you feel the weirwoods weeping where the past was Whoa. always sleeping? And it just feels so resonant, you know? I thought this would go much slower, but it goes so quickly, and soon uh, all of our heroes die, and we're left with the cold, long night, and then the winds of winter blow, years. my friends. The winds of winter have not blown, but yeah, in theory. I mean, next week. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, as soon as this episode drops. Yes, if you look under your earbuds, you will find a copy of The Winds of Winter. Well, I'm sad. I'm sufficiently sad. We're two chapters into Catalan. Uh, it's Pisces season, how we feeling? I started out like, I was like, ha, this is hilarious. And then we kept going. I was like, I'm sad? Starts off sexy, gets real sad. And that, ladies gentlemen's they's thems that that's how Catalan crumbles you know starts off sexy then gets sad that's it sad sexy is also a vibe i agree i've been living off it for a long time <laughs> well with that i think that wraps up our discussion on Catalan 2 in a game of thrones this week we will be back next week with another chapter another Catalan chapter Catalan 3 wow can't can't believe wow. it. We're really in it. We're doing it.
But not just next week. This month, we are going to come to you with another auburn-haired character in in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe. Oh, yes. We are going to be coming back with someone who, uh, you know what? It, it's interesting. I got fan cast by our friends at Davos Fingers oh, briefly really? as her, which had me laughing because I am not short, uh, but I, ha- I think I'm no, sassy. You're not. I think I'm not short. Thank you for knowing. Yes. Uh, but we <laughs> will be covering the Sworn Sword. Rohan Weber is who we were referring to as our other redhead. She is sassy and vibrant and uh, also had to be stuck in a political marriage box a few times and got out of it a few ways. So I'm excited to Mm -hmm. talk about her. And that's not the best part about us talking about the Sworn Sword this month. Eliana, there is a surprise guest. Can you tell me more? Yes, we are having a surprise guest. Join us. For our Patreon episode this month of The Sworn Sword, we are doing a reprise. Um, Chloe's doing a reprise, not me. Um, of, in, in a kind of way, Drunken Egg, with our good friend Joe Buckley. You might know him from the Isle of Faces or writing for the Tower of the Hand or even helping with some of the writing at History of Westeros. Joe has been, I think, quite... quite a pillar of the community for a while, silently, and he acts like, you know, he acts like... He came after us and I'm like, Joe, I was like reading your shit when I was first getting into this fandom. Yeah, what are so you doing? Funny. He's so funny. He is like a <laughs> the nicest person in the world. He'd give you the shirt off his back, but you'd never ask him for it. But he would like if you needed it, he would do it in a heartbeat. Nice guy. We talked for many hours doing this episode. It was very sad. It was lost out at sea. This whole episode got lost as he you know, shipped his audio across the pod. I'm just kidding. That's, That's what happens, how it works. you know. Yeah. <laughs> that that is how that is actually how it works. It happened for that silk that becomes Mansprader's cape. It happened with those spices at Sisterton. God, trade is so exciting. Your audio might be there. Your audio might be at Sisterton. We love exports and imports. Well, we're excited to have him join us to finally reprise the lost episode of from Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire. I don't know that we'll necessarily be drunk for it, but we'll we'll tune back in for that. But that will be our Patreon episode this month, our A Song of Ice and Fire special Patreon episode. Every other month, we release an episode on A Song of Ice and Fire for patrons in the stranger tier, $5 and up a month at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Every other other month, we release an episode about His Dark Materials, the other series we cover. If you haven't read it, totally check it out. Very good series. I recommend it. Eliana recommends it. You'd like it. For sure. For sure. And of course, other things that you might like are our Discord for patrons $10 and above, Thunder Tier and above. If you're going by horse names. Uh, we have a Discord <laughs> for our patrons. And not only... Do we have many channels to talk about various things? We also have, once a month, a brunch slash happy hour. We have yet to announce this month's date. will likely be a Sunday in March, where we get on one of the voice channels on Discord, and we all just kind of hang out. Sometimes we used to like, have people do presentations, but I think this month is going to be a chill, Jackbox Games sort of vibe thing going on. Yeah, uh, just vibes, you know? I think this just month we're going to carry on with nothing but vibes. I can't wait. We had a blast with Jackbox Games, and I think we just need a little time to recuperate, but we'll be back with some crazy stuff at brunch for sure. Definitely yes. hop over there and check it out. And hey, if you are online, check us out on our social media. You can send us a tweet, a DM, whatever you want. Quote, retweet, retweet, at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N. 
Or you can hit us an email with your thoughts on the most recent episode or on the POV itself. Whatever you want to chat about. Send us photos of your cats, your dogs, your animals, your hedgehogs. I don't know. We love it. Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N at gmail.com. It doesn't even have to be about the most recent episode. It's fun to hear people who are who are making their way through, right? Like Danielle did. And, you know, as, as they progress through the series, figuring out where they are. But of course, uh, if you are up to date with episodes, you can subscribe to us on one of the many platforms that we are on, such as Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, where everything is hosted, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Overcast, and Amazon Podcast, Pandora. And I think that's a, that's a pretty decent list. You can just go to Google. We'll be there, I you, promise. Yeah, you can. But I think I did a good job today. You did a great job, Eliana. You, you do a great job all I'm the time. I'm always proud of Eliana. <laughs> well, if you're always proud of Eliana, I'm always proud of Chloe. Uh, Get it? Who is, we, yes. We say goodbye usually around this time. and We do, we do. I was, I was channeling I'm always proud of Bran, but... Uh, I am always proud of Bran, and I have been Chloe. I have been Eliana. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, always proud of Bran. Mm-hmm. <laughs>